Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Good News in the Neighborhood podcast. This is coming to you from our new church in the northwest suburbs of Chicago. I'm Pastor Luke McDonald. I'm so glad that you joined us today. In this feed, you're going to find Sunday sermons from our new church. You'll also find Good News Weekly, which is a collection of content from me, my wife Kristen, Jay Griff, and a whole bunch of other members of our new church. We're so glad that you joined us today. It really helps, as you know, with podcasts, if you share, if you rate, if you leave a review, any of that good stuff helps get the word out. Without further ado, let's get to today's content. We've made it now to chapter six and into chapter seven. If you have a Bible, I hope that you'll turn there. If you have a Bible, I hope that you'll turn there. The message today is about how God works it together for good. Calling it like a case study. How, 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 how does God work it together for good? Anybody who's been in church for five minutes or five years or 50 years uh, has knows and has heard the verse from the book of Romans that God works all things together for good for those who love him and those who are called according to his purpose. I think that many people find it easy to articulate God is in control or I trust God with the difficult things that are happening or I know that God has a plan for my life. Many people find it easy to articulate things like that. But I think it's a useful question, how does he do it? Because so often we experience, I do and maybe you have as well, that it doesn't always happen the way that we want. It doesn't always happen on the timeline that we think. It almost never comes in the way that we would decide. And so if we're going to store up in our hearts an increased amount of trust for God, we must come to a place of belief and understanding about how God works things together for good. So in the book of Acts, we're at a place where things are starting to turn. Uh, If you remember when uh, Jesus was on earth, He gave uh, two instructions at the end of his life, one at the end of the book of Matthew and one at the beginning of the book of Acts. Both of them are similar. I can put them both up on the screen for you. Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples of, note, all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Jesus also said at the beginning of the book that we're studying, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses, notice, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Interwoven into Jesus' instructions for the people that love him was to take the things that they had seen and to take them around the world. Something like five to seven years have passed since Jesus said those things when we're in Acts chapter 6 and 7, and thus far the apostles have been all too content to stay home. They have made almost know to the way that the book reads discernible progress in the part of their mission which was to go. And week by week by week as we've been studying, we've seen that the church was expanding. The church was growing. The church was in fact overflowing with new converts and people being baptized and great things were happening. Yet the mission is, was to go, but the temptation is and was to stay comfortable. And so God takes dramatic action and allows dramatic action, which is the church will increasingly be persecuted in Jerusalem. It will become increasingly difficult to believe in Jesus in Jerusalem. And thus God will force his people out in every direction to fulfill his mission. This is how God works it together for good, a case study. Uh, Last week we heard about 
one of these seven people who were appointed to help, and one of their names was Stephen. This is a long 50, 60 verses that we're going to read, so I'm going to just put the highlights on the screen, but if you're in the book of Acts in chapter 6 and verse 8, you can start to follow along. It says that Stephen, what do we know about Stephen? It says that he was full of grace and power, and he was doing great wonders and signs among the people. This is significant because this is the first time that miracles started to happen through someone who had never directly met or interacted with Jesus Christ. Stephen is full of grace and power, and he's doing great wonders and signs. And then it says that some of them who belonged to the synagogue of the free men, some of these people uh, rose up and disputed with Stephen. Imagine like what our Facebook comment sections look like now is happening in the first century where people started to argue, who is Jesus really? Is he really the Messiah? Is he really the Christ? Did he really rise from the dead? And it says that these people who were arguing with Stephen, in verse 10, it says that they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. That is both the facts and the manner in which the facts were presented. So because they couldn't win the argument, it says that they secretly instigated men who would say, we've heard him speak blasphemous words. Verse 13 says that they set up false witnesses. This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place. All the way into verse 14 where it says, this is what the false witnesses said, we have heard him say that, that Jesus will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses had delivered. And gazing at him, verse 15, it says that all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So when people can't win an argument, they usually attack the person making the argument. And because Jesus was behind Stephen, people set up these false witnesses or people to tell lies about who Stephen was. And we see from Acts chapter 4 to where we are in verse 7, an escalating amount of persecution. What's going to happen before this story is over is Stephen is going to die by stones being thrown at him until he died. And we see that we've gone from warning, do not speak about Jesus anymore or else, to beating, we're not going to kill you, but we are going to whip you and then send you on their way now to murder. There is this increasing amount of persecution. So, Peter, uh, so Stephen is given an opportunity. Stephen is given an opportunity to speak. He's given an opportunity to speak by this council saying, is it true? Is it true what these people have said about you, that you're trying to destroy Moses, that you're, trying to destroy, that you're trying to destroy our traditions? Is it true that you're trying to ruin the faith that has been passed down to you? I saw this quote, and it was helpful to me. Stephen immediately realized that he would never secure his acquittal without compromising his convictions. He determined to use this situation as one last opportunity to share those convictions one last chance to appeal to his Jewish contemporaries to abandon their pattern of rejection and accept the Messiah. It took courage and inspiration to do what he did. His speech was not a defense at all, but a witness. So Stephen starts to speak. And he speaks by giving a history of the nation of Israel. He gives a history of Abraham and Joseph and Moses all the way through uh, the present day at the time that he was speaking. And he gives three points that he makes over and over and over in various ways. Because Israel's past, he's, this is Stephen's argument, Israel's past points to its present, and that points to our present. Do you ever uh, have that experience of 
falling into the, a trap of a bad habit that you felt like you'd kicked a long time ago? You ever uh, hear a song, comes like on your playlist or comes in from somewhere else, and all of a sudden that song puts you like right back in that relationship that was such a bad relationship, and you and her used to listen to that song together, you and him used to pump that music together, and somehow music is so powerful, the music can take you right back to the person that you wish you weren't anymore, but you used to be. Sometimes uh, be in places or certain kinds of food, certain kind, there's all kinds of things that can take us back to who we used to be. And sometimes God allows our past into our present to help make sure that it doesn't become our future. And Stephen's argument here is that Israel's past, who this nation has been, points to who it is right now. And I think, honestly, it points to us too. Here's the three things that he's going to say in different ways over and over and over. One, God's purpose cannot be stopped by man's foolishness. No matter what human people do to try to destroy the church, to try to snuff out the faith, to try to ruin the thing that God has made, God's purposes cannot be stopped by man's foolishness. People will say sometimes in days like today, you know, after COVID, so many people, uh, many people stopped going to church or stopped going to churches often, and people say, what's going to happen to the church of Jesus Christ? What's going to happen to the church? People have stopped going. It's irrelevant. It's not important anymore. And the wise person would say, the church has been just fine for 2,000 years, no matter how many foolish people tried to wreck it. God's purposes cannot be stopped by man's foolishness. Stephen is also going to say in his speech that God's presence is not bound by a place. So many people associate, I met God at a camp, I met God in a certain church building, I met God with a certain preacher, I met God with a certain musician or a certain place. God's presence is not bound by geographical place. That's important for the history of Israel. And then three, Stephen's going to point out over and over that God's appointed leaders are often rejected by his people. Those are the three things that he's going to point out. Let me just take you through the text slowly and show it to you. This is all with the high priest. They said, so are these things so? And Stephen started to talk about that the God of glory had appeared to Abraham. And God said to Abraham, I want you to leave your father and mother I want you to go out to a place, and I'm going to show you where you're going on the way. Now, that sounds like a little bit crazy to us in our modern day, to just like move and get in your truck and start driving without knowing. But we live in a world and in a place where geographical relocation is not that big of a deal. I just as an interesting way, by show of hands, how many people live like, say, how many people live more than 25 miles right now from where they went to high school? Just a show of hands around the room. How many people live more than 20? Yeah, right. A whole bunch of people. I could not raise my hand. I maybe don't even live a mile from where I went to high school. Uh, but it was a crazy thing when God said to Abraham, I want you to go out to a different place, not the place where you're from. Leave everything that you know. And even crazier, Stephen says, that God didn't even give him a an inheritance in that place. God sent him out to a place where he had nothing. Yet God spoke that because Abraham's children would be sojourners, God would bless the whole world through them. And then Moses, Abraham became his son Isaac, became his son Jacob, became his 12 sons, known often as the patriarchs. And if you remember, we preached about this last fall here at the church, but those 12 patriarchs, they were very, very jealous of their youngest brother, Joseph. They sold him into Egypt, into slavery. It says there in 
verse 9 very significantly, but God was with him. Again, see, do you see it? Even though Joseph and even though Abraham were sent out from where they were supposed to be or where they wanted to live, God's presence is not bound by a place. And so eventually, if you know the story, uh, Joseph rises from being in a pit, sold into slavery, into Potiphar's house, and then from Potiphar's house into prison, and then from prison one day he wakes up through a miracle of being able to interpret dreams, and he ends up in the palace. And the second most powerful man in Egypt. And at that time, God miraculously reunites Joseph and his entire family, including his father before his father's death, and their entire family relocated to Egypt. Still not in the place that God had promised them or in the place where they wanted to be. Soon enough, the time of God's promise drew near. We're into verse 17 now. And it was now into the time of Moses. 400 years passed between Joseph's death and Moses' birth. And it says during that time that there came a Pharaoh who didn't know anything about Joseph. There was no longer anything significant about Joseph's name or his contribution. And so the people of Israel were made slaves. They were forced to work to build the great pyramids and things that the pharaohs of that day were working on. And eventually there were so many of the Hebrews, the Israelites, because they were so, uh, there were so many of them. And this is where in verse 19, 20, 21, that the pharaoh at that time said, there's too many of these children, we got to get rid of all these children. And then he started to kill every male under two years old. But one young man was miraculously saved and ended up being adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. This was Moses. Moses' life, as Stephen talks about it, is split up into three segments, each one of them 40 years long. If you think that God is waiting a little long for you to get to your purpose in life, Moses never did anything significant until 80 years of age. Let's make you feel a little better, doesn't it? Yeah, I could hear that harumph from the crowd. Absolutely. I'm feeling it too. I got all kinds of time. Moses was instructed, verse 22 it says, because he was raised in the palace, he was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in word and deed. But when Moses was 40 years old, he thought to himself, I want to meet the people that are just like me. I want to go meet my family. And so he goes down to the place where the slaves were and gets involved in a dispute and ends up killing someone because this person was hassling another person. And Moses gets afraid and runs out, and he is in exile away from not just his people that he was raised with and also his people of birth. But I didn't, this is into verse 29 now, at this Moses fled and became an exile, but he was married during that time and had two children. And 40 years passes while Moses is in the wilderness. 40 years. Until at 80 years of age, God appears to Moses in a burning bush. This is verse 32. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. But God said, I have something for you. You're going to lead your people after 400 years. You're going to lead them out of Egypt. And this man Moses did. He performed signs and wonders at the Red Sea was parted and the people started their journey back to the promised land. God met with them in those days and gave them the Ten Commandments. Yet, again, people with their foolishness tried to stop God's promise. Again, and you may know the story, Moses was meeting with God and getting the law. And at the same time, the people were melting down their gold and making a golden calf, an idol with which they could worship. Why? Because so often, instead of a God that we can't see, we settle for a lesser God that we are happy because we can't. And so then Moses got real angry at this. 
And finally, in explaining it, he says in verse 48 that the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. We so often think that God is stuck in a place, but he is not. And this is all Stephen's speech, and he finally gets to the end in verse 51. Now I'm going to start reading again. Thank you for sticking with me through everything that Stephen wanted to say to where Stephen says to the gathered council, he says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed the ones, those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, who you have betrayed and murdered. You have received the law delivered by angels and didn't keep it. Stephen gives 50 plus verses of speech to say this. I'm not the one dishonoring the traditions. You are. I'm not the one failing to fill out the law. You are. Stephen's speech turned the accusations around on his accusers. They were the ones guilty of not following tradition and dishonoring God. I'll say it again. His whole speech was about how Israel's past points to its present, and that points to our present. You see, Dear friends, God's purpose cannot be stopped by man's foolishness. There's two helpful things there. One, God's purpose for you cannot be stopped by what other people do to you. It's so easy, especially in the way that culture teaches us to think today, to think that if I've been victimized, if I've been traumatized, if I've been abused, then I am a victim now and will stay a victim always. Do you know that no matter what's happened to you, no matter what someone else did to you, no matter what terrible thing has been done to you, it cannot stop God's purpose for your life. No matter what people do, it can't stop. Maybe even more delightful today. Do you know that God's purpose cannot be stopped by your foolishness either? I wish I could say, I wish I could say that most of the times when God's purposes in my life have been threatened, it was because of things other people did. But if I'm being honest, and maybe you can be too, the greatest threat to what God wants to do in me is usually the person that I see in the mirror. God's purpose cannot be stopped by man's foolishness. Uh, two, God's presence is not bound by a place. So often we get tied up in the place that we like to worship God, the people that we like to worship God with, the habits that are most comfortable. God can work in and through us anywhere. And three, God's appointed leaders are often rejected by his people. God's appointed leaders are often rejected by his people. Back to the text now, it comes for the finish. It says in verse 54, look with me if you have a Bible open. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him, speaking of Stephen. Just imagine how dramatic the way that they were acting must have been if when they were telling Luke to write it down later, they're like, hey, hey, hey. Make sure to put that part in there about how they were like grinding their teeth. But it says he was full of the Holy Spirit. And he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Verse 58. But they, they cried out with a loud voice and it says that, look at that. Look at, they stopped their ears and rushed together at him. So I'm like imagining these priests in the first century, you know, and they're wearing the robes, right, CJ? They're wearing the robes, and they got like one of those big hats on, trying to be all full of dignity, and I just love the thought that they were so mad at what this one man of God would say. Do you see it there in the Bible? It says that they, 
They put their fingers in their ears because they refused to listen. And they ran all at the same time towards him. And it says that they, they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. The way that stoning was done in this time, most likely, was he was put down into a little, into like a gully or a, a ditch of some kind. And someone would roll a big stone. And then if they figured that that didn't kill him, once that big stone kind of slammed into the guy, they would all have handfuls of smaller and middle-sized stones. And they would throw it at the person. Just imagine it. Until they stopped moving, and everyone was sure that they were dead. They cast him out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses, it says, laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. It's one of those things Luke loves to do. He just put that over there. Saul's the most important character in the rest of the book of Acts. That's the first time we meet him. And it says that as they were stoning him, Stephen called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, and that in the original words is like the moment those words left his lips, he fell asleep. I love, would love to think that if God called me to walk this road, I could walk this road this way. But if I'm being honest, it's like kind of brutal, right? Like, Stephen, all he did was serve God the way that he was supposed to. And for it, he gave his life and in a brutal, bloody, painful way. And it's crazy to me to think that in the one hand, a few verses before he was preaching at these people, saying, you're the ones that killed Jesus, you need to turn and repent, and yet there was so much of the Holy Spirit inside of him that the very last thing that left his lips was not, see on the other side, suckers. It wasn't, we'll see what happens when Jesus comes back. The very last thing that comes out of his mouth is, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. So I think it's fair to ask, and this is where we're going to park till we finish, dear friends. How can Stephen's martyrdom be good? So if, Zeke, we're believing, what we're saying is that we believe that God works everything that he does, he works it for good. For the people that love him, good, okay, Stephen's got it there. For the people that are called according to his purpose, okay, he's got it there. But I think that we got to get a little bit more intelligent about what do we mean, because I look around this room now and I think about all the people I've talked to today and all the things happening, and just in the church right now, just in this church over here in Palatine right now, there's cancer, and again, and the doctor says, we're not going to get out of it this time. And there's, he needs to sleep some other place, and I don't know if we're ever getting back together. And there's, I'm not sure if we're going to be able to make payroll this month, and I don't know if the business is going to make it. And on and on and on and on, the things that you and I are navigating, trying to deal with, trying to figure out, how can Stephen's martyrdom be called good. One, Stephen was given a platform to speak for God. It's interesting to note or to think that a person who gave his life to serving God was never given more of an opportunity to influence for God than when something terrible was happening. 
And the same is often true for you and for me. It's amazing how often I was blessed, uh, praise the good Lord, as I'm sitting here, this is Thursday when we're recording this, just maybe like three hours ago, I was sitting in my office and a guy who's been coming to the church for a little while came in and before the end of sitting there talking, he prayed to accept Jesus Christ as his savior. Uh, he was raised in a different religion, has never really been in church till Easter this year. Someone from the church here invited him. And like this amazing thing, it just, he found faith in Jesus for the very first time today. Incredible, like wow. But what's so interesting is that the way that he got to that was from a lot of challenge and difficult stuff that happened in life that kind of like woke him up to reach for something else out there. I bet the same is true for you and for me. I'm looking around the room. I know a lot of the people that are here. That what allows us to reach or to push for God is almost never our successes and almost always our struggles, our challenges, our failures. Stephen's desire as a person was to speak for God, yet the best opportunity that he had to do this was not from his success as a minister, but from this moment right here where he was about to die. That's one way in which Stephen's martyrdom can be good. Two, it says in the scriptures that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Uh, Paul says later, we'll study this sometime, that he wishes that he could leave this earth right now. It's just that he has more work here to do, but it's better to be with God than to be here. And as much as we can't see it from this side, as best as my Bible teaches me, no one who has made it to heaven, no one who's made it to glory on the other side would for one second wish they were back here in this sinful, gross earth that we're living in. We are so sad when people go, and so because we're so sad when people go, we kind of project onto them that it's bad for them. The process of getting to death is bad, but do you know that for the Christian, uh, you're not taken from your treasure? For the Christian, you're taken to your treasure. And so Stephen, in God's kindness, takes this bit of pain, I'm sure it was astonishing pain, but he receives this honor of giving his life for Jesus Christ. Three, you can't miss it. Uh, Saul, who would someday be named Paul, is there in verse 58, and he is the single most significant person in the history of the church of Jesus Christ. Since Jesus went to heaven, no person has made more impact on this planet than Saul turned Paul. Yet, the very first time we meet him and the very beginning of his story, he hates Christians and participates in the murder of another one. So somehow, in a confusing way that so many of us struggle to understand, Stephen's life was given as a seed that when taken root, would grow through Paul to something amazing. We so often, you and me, want to see the good things that we want to have happen, happen. But often, God requires us to plant the seeds into children, into people, into opportunities for ministry that so often we don't get to see the things that we want to have happen in our lives, happen in our lives, we see them in other people. And then four, I started here and I'll come back to it. Through Stephen's death, God forced the church to fulfill its mission. As best as we can read in the first seven chapters of the book of Acts, the church was content to stay home where they were comfortable. The church was growing and growing and growing and growing, but it was not going and going and going and going. And so through the death of Stephen, God forced people out of fear out of Jerusalem, and the gospel multiplied around the whole world. 
And so how can it be good that Stephen died? Well, it wasn't necessarily good for Stephen, but through his death, God worked great and mighty way to force the church to fulfill its mission. And so I wonder, I don't know what you're carrying to church today as you're watching this online, listening to the sermon sometime. I don't know what you're carrying here to this moment, right this second. But we're just here personal. What if it was just you and me talking for just a second? What if you could reframe what you're carrying to here? Some way like I've just tried to do with the story of Stephen. To lean forward again into the truth that God is doing something good, even if it doesn't feel like something good. God is working something good, dear friend, even if it doesn't feel right now like something good. How does he do it? Well, over time and through his purposes, he does great things. And the reason why we struggle so often to believe it is because we're stuck here in time. It's June the 30th. It's July the 2nd, 3rd, 2022. And right now it doesn't feel very good. So it's hard to believe that over there it could ever be good. I think that's kind of the way it goes, right? But, but, here's my three questions where we went through these before to finish. Will I act like God's purpose cannot be stopped by man's foolishness? We so often give too much credit to the attacks of the enemies out there. Do you know that if what the Supreme Court does is good or bad, God's purposes can't be stopped? That if the president is good or bad, God's purposes can't be stopped? I went to vote this week. I hope that you did. I was like the only person in the place that I was voting. There were like eight people there helping me. It made me a little nervous, like I was the only one there. Felt like they were really checking me out. And uh, the guy, I voted for this guy. Uh, I can be honest, right? I met this guy who was running for an office, and I really liked his hair. He said like a really hair, and it's kind of like he was, and I was like, all right, I'll vote for this guy. And, uh, and he, didn't, he didn't win, unfortunately. Uh, last time I checked on the internet, he didn't win. But I don't know whether God's purposes were for that person to do this job or some other job or some other thing. But God's purposes can't be stopped by man's foolishness. COVID couldn't stop God's purposes in this world. And we too often give too much credit to our circumstances like our circumstances stopped me. No, our circumstances might have stopped our plans, but they couldn't have stopped God's purposes and plans. Two, well, I believe that God's presence is not bound by a place. Here's what that means. It's possible that God's not in that relationship that you want so bad to work. It's possible that God's presence is not in that business that you're trying to start. It's possible that God's presence is not in that place that you were hoping to buy, that path that you were hoping to go, that plan that you had of where you wanted to be by 25 or 35 or 45. We think God must be with me if it's going the way that I want to go. No, God's purpose is not bound by a place. And then three, I wonder, will I reject God's appointed leaders in my life? This is in the text, so I want to preach it to you fairly. God brings people along, and all of the leaders that we have are God's people. God's, your boss is God's appointed leader in your life, even if that person doesn't acknowledge God at all. And I wonder, am I going to accept or reject that God has placed people over me for times, for seasons, for... And will I accept what those people have to bring? 
Israel's past was that they answered in the wrong way to these questions. And it's why God had to keep working over and over and over and over through them and eventually expand the gospel out to the whole world. And so I wonder, dear friends, today now, as we're finishing, I wonder how can you reframe the challenging things that you're facing if you really believe that God is good and if you really believe that God is working? I want to give you a chance to think about that for a second. Why don't you bow your head and we're just going to pray ourselves to the finish here. Lord, I pray that you would bless every person that's listening to my voice right now. Increase in us, God. Would you give us miraculous faith that you're working and that it's good? Miraculous faith. Lord, I believe and I've seen and I've tasted and experienced it that even when it doesn't seem like you're part of it at all, you're working just the same. And I want to pray, Lord, that you would keep moving in us and keep allowing us to trust you. Just as Stephen went to death, believing that you were with him just the same, your purpose is extended even past his death, and they can do that for us just the same. Would you rise us up in faith, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us today. Hope you were blessed and encouraged. If you'd like to follow along with us more, you can find us on Instagram at Good News in the Neighborhood. You can find us on Facebook at the same name. You can find us at www.goodnewsintheneighborhood.org. If there's anything that we can do, pray for you, help you in any way, please find us at that website and leave a prayer request. We'd love to bless you. And uh, until we see you again next time, this is Good News. Good News.